0: Welcome to episode 805 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindberg of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo, we missed a day. So we had our, I'd say, last big book deadline or last book deadline that required a ton of work. So we wrapped that up yesterday. Again, if you are planning on... Getting the book, we'd appreciate a pre-order. And if you're pre-ordering, we'd appreciate that you click on the link on the BP homepage and order through there so that BP gets a tiny percentage. Anything you want to talk about before we get to emails? I don't believe so. All right. Well, then let me answer a question from Dylan in New York, just because we didn't talk about the Cespedes deal on Monday. Dylan says, with UNS Cespedes turning down a reported $110 million offer from the Nationals in exchange for the Mets' $75 million offer, I got to thinking, what's the largest difference between the cash amount a player wound up accepting versus the one they reportedly turned down? Cespedes' is $35 million. Has there ever been a bigger difference? I presume this is not play indexable and thus may require a bit of digging. This is not play indexable, and really there's no good automated way to do it because we're talking about the difference between accepted deals and offered deals, and no one really records offered deals in a systematic way. But nor
1: Nor are offered deals even necessarily reliable.
0: Yes, that's true also. But I think, I mean, in general, we would assume that The differences are not huge. We've talked about this before, how teams, how free agents decide where they're going to go and how much factors other than money play into it. And clearly they do play into it at times. Cespedes supposedly liked being in New York, but this $35 million on the surface difference is really a no million dollar difference. It's really, once you adjust for the differences in these deals, the Mets deal is obviously a three-year deal and there's an opt-out after the first year so he's getting 27 and a half million basically he's he's signing up for a one-year 27 million dollar deal and if he decides to stay for the next couple of years then he'd get I think 23 and a half in the two years after that but this obviously gives him a great opportunity to get another contract because after this season he'll be choosing between basically a two-year $47 million deal and whatever is available on the market next year. And if he has a good year, you would think he could do better than that. So he will almost certainly opt out. Whereas the Nationals contract was five years and it was $110 million, but the opt-out was after two years and there was a ton of deferred money. So according to reports... It really was like $77 million in present-day value. Wow, and that is super deferred. Yeah, it's very, very deferred. So that really kind of so he know, turned, erases the difference. So he turned down,
1: so basically he would have gotten, let's ignore the opt-out. And if he'd signed with the Nationals, it would have been like signing for two extra years and two extra
0: million dollars? Basically, in yeah. Real, in real money? Wow. Yeah, there's. I mean, we were relying on reports because it's not a deal that actually happened. But I think Peter Gammons said that it would be paid out over a 15 year deal. And I think he said that it was the present day value was 77. And the present day value of the Mets deal would be very close to what it actually is 75. So there, I mean, there are always these differences, whether it's tax rates you have to factor in or front-loaded, back-loaded differences, or opt-out differences, or incentive differences. So, I mean, if there is what seems like a huge difference on the surface, then there probably is some other explanation. Uh, there's probably something that actually brings the totals closer into line. Would you rather, as a player, have the opt-out be earlier or later? Probably earlier. Why? Well, I mean, in cespedus's case, probably earlier is better just because he'll be younger when he can exercise it and therefore he can get a longer deal and has more close to prime years left that his next team would be buying. Mm -hmm. This is like, we've answered questions in the past about, you know, why don't teams offer players a ton of money to just play for them for a year or two? And why don't players do that? And we've talked about how it's kind of, it would be betting on yourself to do that because you would be foregoing the safety and security of a long-term deal to go year to year and potentially cash in more. If you continue to be a productive player, then you keep getting prime money for each year that you sign that contract. So that's sort of what Cespedes did here, except that it seemed like his market wasn't where everyone thought it would be. I mean, I'm sure if he had gotten the you know, six year, $125 million deal without crazy backloading that people expected him to, that Jim Bowden in his free agent predictions expected him to, and that I expected him to when I took the over on that, then odds are he would have taken that, like everyone takes that kind of deal. And so that sort of deal just wasn't out there for him. And so he is, uh, I guess, betting on himself to some extent that he will continue to be an appealing player A year from now and that the market will be weaker and thinner and that he'll be able to get more money that way.
1: Yeah, I think logically earlier holds up. It'll be different for different players depending on how they age and all that but basically the point of the opt-out is that you're getting the club to submit to commit a lot to you in the long run if things go poorly while avoiding getting locked into a deal in case you improve or the market gets better And so, the less the player has to commit to the club, in theory, the better. It's also much less likely that something uh, terrible is going to happen to Cespedes in year one than in year uh, five or four or three. And so, like you know, like if he had a you know if Albert Bell's back uh, happened to him or something like that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's less likely that he could uh, like essentially get what is free money in that in that situation, kind Mm -hmm. of. In a way. Uh, So, but the plan, of course, if he opts out is not to sign, you know, it's not like he's going year to year after that. The plan would be that he would get a new long contract that would cover those years anyway. It's, I mean, basically, to some degree, what an opt out is, is trying to turn your five year deal into like a seven year deal or an eight year deal. Because once you opt out, you can theoretically still sign that long deal as long as you're still good and as long as you're still young and as long as you're still good enough that you would choose to opt out so so as much as anything it's really about trying to extend uh, the amount of time that you are covered in the event of your you're having albert bell back uh mm-hmm. was it back or was it hip it's was hip. albert bell a hip sorry albert bell it was hip. hip. yeah uh mm-hmm. anyway so yeah shorter i think the earlier the opt out the better i don't think there's any logical way to uh avoid that
0: conclusion mm-hmm. okay Uh, We got an answer to last week when we talked about Josh Donaldson, you wondered when the last time a player had been traded just prior to an MVP season. And some listener who I can't find right now must have been a Facebook comment or a tweet did the research and found out that it was Willie Hernandez who was traded in 1983, May of 1983 by the Cubs to the Phillies and then won the MVP award with the Phillies in 1984. And we got a question, by coincidence, about Willie Hernandez from Andrew, who says, I was reading the Hardball Times Annual 2016 recently and I got to Josh Distelheim's essay about the 1984 Tigers. What struck me in particular was when he pointed out that Hernandez, the team's newly acquired closer, won not only the AL Cy Young Award but also the AL MVP Award While he had a very fine year, 140 innings pitched, 1.92 ERA, 2.58 FIP, he was far from the most valuable player. His 3.2 Fangraphs award doesn't crack the top 30 for pitchers, and Cal Ripken should have run away with the MVP. It's hard to imagine if a reliever had this same season even sniffing MVP first place votes. Do you think that this will ever happen again? A full-time relief pitcher winning the Cy Young and the MVP in the same season? If so, what sort of season would it take? Would it be possible to see this sort of player coming, like being drafted first overall, or would they inevitably be a fluke conversion, a la Mariano Rivera or Wade Davis?
1: I think this couldn't happen again. You don't think a reliever could possibly win MVP?
0: I don't think so. I mean, barring a big change in reliever usage where guys go back to throwing 100 innings a year and bring back the fireman and all of that, I don't think, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like the popular perception or the media perception of closers and relievers is just as elevated as ever, or it, or it seems like it is. I mean, you know, sabermetric sort of writers have been banging the drum about saves not being a great way to use relievers and leverage and all of that for many years but you still get the sense that teams want good relievers. They want good closers. We've talked about this this offseason. Teams are stockpiling relief aces. And yet even the best relievers make less money, get less guaranteed money than a mid-rotation starter, which sort of shows you how teams actually value relievers in practice. But, but it's weird how like for a few years there was a push to put all these relievers in the hall of fame and now it seems like there isn't for the most part like we we talked about uh who did we talk about Hoffman and Wagner and Lee Smith and Lee Smith right um so you know Hoffman almost got in Wagner didn't come close Lee Smith seems to have sort of missed the boat on that so I don't I don't know where relievers stand In the public perception now But I would say it would be very difficult For a 60 inning reliever To win an MVP award I mean we've seen elite Dominant relief appearances Well the very best we've seen The very best I mean not just
1: I mean Mariano Rivera is the greatest Of all time for for career but uh, On an individual season level Craig Kimbrell and Wade Davis Both have cases for the you know basically The greatest relief seasons Individual seasons of all time yeah. So now then, let's uh, let's take those uh, and uh, and see how they did. Uh, so the last candidate, I would say, the last like legitimate candidate that I remember is Francisco Rodriguez, who saved what sixty two games uh, for mm-hmm. the best team in the American League uh, in two thousand eight. And sixty two mm-hmm. was the record, of course, and uh, blew away the record, the previous record of fifty seven. And uh, he finished sixth in MVP voting, and uh-huh. he he got one first-place vote. And so that kind of shows you that how close he got and also shows you how close he didn't get because uh, only one out of 30 were actually willing to vote for him. And I do think that with your ballot, I think that it's a lot easier to sort of try to capture a lot of different things or to be interesting or to, I don't know, tell a story with your ballot. And so if you're thinking about a guy like that for fifth-place, I could see it being really easy to to rationalize it, but clearly no nobody wanted to put him first. I think Mark Wicker, his uh, hometown sports columnist, was the one first place vote. And uh, let's just say that the local Angels blogger at his site uh, did not approve of that vote and <laughs> insulted him and got insulted back for it. That was me, me and Mark Wicker. <laughs> Had a fight uh-huh. uh, and That was the first day on the job for me, Literally my first
0: day As Bring a baseball writer Hot takes and traffic
1: Yeah, unfortunately the comment threads To that, which were mostly him uh, Insulting me uh, Have disappeared um, <laughs> So he finished sixth And this year, 2015 uh, The only relievers who got votes at all Were Wade Davis Who got one tenth place vote uh, With a .94 ERA, incidentally on a division winner, 0.94, 0.94. Uh, And Trevor Rosenthal, who got the equivalent of, I think, a sixth place vote. I don't know. He might've gotten like three ninth place votes and an eighth place vote or something, but he got, uh, he finished 17th uh, with uh, five total points, one point more than Curtis Granderson. So that it kind of shows you the limits of where they're able to get at least this year, because Wade Davis was as good as you can be. The year before Greg Holland finished 16th, he had 13 total points, which is like the equivalent of like, uh, you know, three sixth place votes, something like that. Uh, And nobody in the NL, no reliever in the NL, got a single vote. So if you go back a little farther, like say to 2003, Gagne finished sixth with 143 points uh, and in the same league, John Smoltz finished 18th, uh, but with only nine points and Billy Wagner finished 23rd uh, with the same number of points as Rosenthal and Keith Folk finished 15th with 20 points and Mariano Rivera got three points uh, and was the last man named. Uh, In 2002, there were guys who finished 8th, 12th, 15th, 15th, and 18th. So, definitely more common, uh, even in the even in the one-inning closer era, definitely was a lot more common back then. Kimbrell has finished 8th, 11th, and 23rd. So, uh, it is still possible, because Craig Kimbrell finished 8th, uh, to get up there. But, let me see, I doubt Kimbrell got a first-place vote, uh, and he did not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think your conclusion is pretty much spot-on, unless... Uh, they started throwing how many innings would you say they would have to start throwing before they would be serious I mean already as it is pitchers don't really get fair consideration for MVP like they're dramatically uh, underrepresented in voting based on their their wars uh, mm-hmm. so then you throw into that the lack of innings um, and the fact that they're sort of seen by some voters as being the failed versions of of starters i mean it would have to be like you know 130 innings or so just to get really serious traction right
0: yeah well i mean maybe you would stand out from the pack if you threw say 100 and no one else threw more than 80 or something maybe you would just be so good compared to other relievers that people would give you points for that when i think when points eric, but probably not 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 first, first place, place, place but. yeah when eric Gagne won in 2003 the NL Cy Cy Young Young. yeah yeah when he won the Cy Young he I mean even that like uh, did uh, how recently I mean how have relievers fared in Cy Young voting even recently because when Eric Gagne won the Cy Young in 2003 he got 28 first place votes and the only other guys who got votes at all got first place votes at all were Jason Schmidt and Mark Pryor who each got two, two first-place votes. So that was just a landslide. And even that, I think, would be hard to imagine now for a reliever to get that kind of consideration.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, uh,
0: it's Davis in 2014 was eighth in AL Cy Young voting and got no first-place votes. And that was really just as spectacular season
1: yeah the problem is that the spectacular seasons aren't rare anymore that yeah. there's there are four or five guys who are capable of having a low ones era and and being you know almost that dominant at the time that Gagne did it that was you know arguably the greatest relief season of all time and so you could say the same thing about Dennis Eckersley's prime when he was he won the Cy Young and MVP award in 92 finished fifth in MVP voting twice, finished sixth in MVP voting once. And it wasn't so much that he was more dominant and it wasn't really that he was pitching in a different role than closers are now. It's just that it was new and novel and probably the same about Willie Hernandez to some degree Uh, at the time. He was probably used... I don't know how to... Actually, I don't know. I don't think I'm qualified to talk about Willie Hernandez. So forget (laughs) I said Willie Hernandez.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Gagne season was... uh was really extraordinary. I mean, like, Eric Gagne's 2003 strikeout rate would have led the major leagues in 2015. Uh-huh. And that's pretty crazy, given how much strikeout rates, particularly reliever strikeout rates, have risen in the 12 years between those seasons. I oh, mean, yeah. he struck out 44.8% of batters he faced. And the leader last year, Earldis Chapman, was at 41 Point seven percent and Gagne was way above like Chapman led all other major league relievers by one percentage point so you know there were lots of guys sort of nipping at his heels whereas in 2003 Gagne led by a full 10 percentage points he was at 44.8% and Jose Valverde was second at 34.8% so he was just sort of in his own category at that point and oh, he certainly. also threw 82 innings which would have led everyone but Bettsus last season so he was in it was, in was, his, a, it was yeah, crazy Gagne's season I think it was the best
1: FIP in history up to about 2012 or 13 mm-hmm. uh, and yeah I mean it was a, it was an absolute like I don't remember being I, I wanted Jason Schmidt to win that year cuz I liked Jason Schmidt but I don't remember thinking that it was weird that Gagne, like Gagne was, you know, as the greatest superstar closer that we had seen since Eckersley, probably even more so, I think, at the time, than I even considered Mariano Rivera to be. But like, if you look at what Gagne did that year, he had a 3.37 ERA plus, he had a .86 FIP. Those are both amazing. Davis's ERA pluses, 396 and 444 in the last two years. So even adjusted for league, his ERAs are better. His FIP was 1.19 uh, in 2014. You can look up Craig Kimbrell, but similar. Uh, you know, he had, let's see, Kimbrell had, uh, Kimbrell had ERA pluses of 399, 311. He had a FIP of 0.78 one year. So it's Kanye, if you do the thing where you only look at him compared, you know, relative to what everybody else at his position was doing, yeah, he was Babe Ruth as a closer. But then a bunch of guys have sort of caught up to him and don't stand out because their competition is so much better, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if if there was only one Wade Davis, then I could see Wade Davis getting those votes right now. But Wade Davis's numbers, uh, while better than anybody else's, don't make your eyes pop out relative to you know guys like Chapman and Kimbrell and Uehara and Kenley Jansen and there's just a lot of really awesome relievers right now.
0: Yeah, I mean even if you had uh, if you had say Carter Cap's 2015 season for a full season, he only pitched 31 innings, but he had a you know one one six ERA. He struck out 49.2 percent of batters he faced. But even if you did that. Over a full season And even if you did it for a playoff contender And even if you pitched 70 innings or something It still wouldn't be close Really to what Gagne did Relative to the league at the time I don't think And even if you had Carter Capps' season I mean, I don't know If you had Carter Capps' season And you pitched 80 innings And you saved 60 games And you played for a team That won, won its division I don't know. You'd get some MVP votes certainly, or you'd you'd get some Cy Young votes. I don't I still don't know whether you'd get MVP votes, but it seems that I don't. I don't know. Relievers continue to get paid fairly well, although still not much relative to starters. People still think relievers are very important, but it does seem like they are regarded a little bit differently.
1: When you look at Clayton Kershaw winning the MVP award. Clayton Kershaw that year was basically allowing, well, let's see, he allows a half a run less per nine innings uh, than any other pitcher. So he's, you know, he's 10 or 15 wins better than any other pitcher and like than any other pitcher. And he's going up against the very best pitchers, of course, because he's a starter. And if you look at what Wade Davis does relative to the next couple best pitchers, it's like, you know, it's a couple runs over the course of a year. So it's just, it's leveraged runs, but it's harder to to see the MVP case when you're, you know, only a couple runs better than Carson Smith, or you're only a couple runs better than Ken Giles, or you're only a couple runs better than guys who, you know, you barely even know when the season begins.
0: Yeah. Okay. Zach says in episode 801, Ben was talking about Tigers owner Mike Gillich and said they have an owner, who said he doesn't care about money. He wants to win the World Series, but there's a limit, obviously, because they're not running the highest payroll in baseball. So how much money would it actually take to buy a championship? Let's set the bar at willing to bet all your possessions. (laughs) What's the minimum amount of money do you think it'd take to be certain next year is the year? Would it change if you could pick a specific year sometime down the road? Ken Giles allowed nine unearned runs last year. Oh, Huh? So he's a mirage.
1: That's a it's a lot of
0: unearned runs. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot for a closer.
1: That's more unearned runs than Wade Davis allowed runs. <laughs>
0: huh? Well,
1: he also had a great fit.
0: Phillies were the worst defensive team.
1: Yeah, he had a great fit in the year before. He
0: didn't allow 900 runs. Mm-hmm. Still, though, that's a lot. Anyway, yeah. what's the question? So, as for Zach's question, how much money would you have to spend to buy a championship? "Quote unquote." And you can define that however you want. It's baseball, so you can't really buy a championship. We talked a couple days ago about the Cubs and how they're 4-1 to favorites to win the World Series this year and how probably no team should be 4-1 to just because there's so much uncertainty in the playoffs particularly. So even if you get there, you still have a worse than 50% shot to win the World Series unless you are... Some crazy super team. This came up once. I think Russell Carlton did a post at BP maybe about how good you would have to be to be a better than even chance to win the World Series assuming you get into the playoffs. And it was something kind of crazy, right? Like you'd have to be uh, some super team. Maybe you can find it while I'm talking. So to buy a championship, again, you can set the bar wherever you want there. But let's say... How much would you have to spend to be the favorite every year?
1: The favorite, so not fifty percent, but the favorite. not fifty
0: percent. Fifty percent, I think, is is crazy. But yeah, to but be it's the also, favorite every well, year. that's
1: the no. It's it's crazy, but that's the point. Yeah, well, it, to be the favorite every year, who you know, who knows? Like the Cubs are the favorite this year,
0: right? They're not so spending how that much? How much would? No, they're not. But to be the favorite every year, you would have to spend a ton of money because. I mean, unless you were incredibly good at building a team. I mean, even the the Cardinals or whoever you want to use as the example of the best team are not the favorite going into every season, probably over a, a longer span than a few years at a time. So to continue to be the best, if the worst team in baseball in October wanted to be the best team in baseball by March, how much would it have to spend? Could you even do it? If you had taken the Reds or the Brewers or whoever at the end of last season and said, "I want this to be the World Series favorite by the time next season starts," could you do it just with the free agents who were available? Free agents who were could. available
1: plus your farm system to trade from. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess yes. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna start by saying I think so. Yeah. So. And this you- was
0: a strong free agent year, but but yes.
1: All right, so then you'd have your rotation could be Price, Cranky, Zimmerman, Cueto, and you know Chen, something like that. Uh So that's a pretty good rotation. It's not, but well, but it's not historically good. No, it's yeah. I mean, it's 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 really good, but mm -hmm. it's is it better than Strasburg, Scherzer, Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez, and what we projected Doug Fister to be? Not. Probably, but sure, not are sure not much. Are Price and Granke, do they project better, do you think, than Strasburg and Scherzer did last year?
0: I'd say yes. Okay, and then not that much.
1: Zimmerman is either a push or Zimmerman was better last year. So Zimmerman, yeah. now you'd rather have old Zimmerman. Quato mm-hmm. uh, Geo. Knowing, you know, not knowing what he is exactly, big volatility, mm-hmm. worried about his his performance in the second half over Geo, who's Steady Eddie, the most consistent pitcher in the game. it's close. Yeah, it's close.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's close.
1: It, I could see it going either way. And then, uh, you know, Fister against, you know, Leek or Samarja or Chen or, seems pretty close. So it's pretty close. Mm-hmm. And the Nationals missed the playoffs. But yeah. <laughs> now this team is going to have all the hitters too So maybe it'll, it'll it'll get better I'm not saying the Nationals are proof But it's not like the, necessarily the greatest rotation of all time mm-hmm. You still also though have your farm system So you could maybe trade for Jose Fernandez And then I think you could make a better case And then you'd have what? Chris Davis playing yeah. first Howie, Howard, Howie Kendrick playing second <laughs> uh, Ian Desmond playing third I mean short David Freeze playing third or oh no you have Ben Zobrist so Zobrist is in there maybe you have Zobrist playing third or second uh mm-hmm. and then you have an outfield of Upton Hayward and either Cespedes or Alex Gordon
0: yeah I mean you and know even if you you're don't have the any, worst team in baseball when you start you're probably gonna have some players a couple right players oh who yeah because still crack this lineup if
1: so. you were the Reds you would also have you know, Votto, you'd have had Todd yeah. Frazier. So Todd yeah. Frazier would have been your third baseman.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, you need a catcher, but you could trade for a catcher. Mm-hmm. And then for depth, you have your entire starting team from last year as backups, basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and your entire rotation from last year can move into the bullpen. Yeah. Plus you still have Chapman. So yeah, yeah that doesn't seem too hard.
0: Yeah. Okay. That, but <laughs> so. I don't know.
1: I don't think that team gets you to 50%. No,
0: I don't but think so But
1: I would guess that it could get you to High 90s to win the division Preseason, depending on your division
0: mm-hmm.
1: Now if you're the Reds and you're going up against the Cubs I'm not sure I, I could see that team projecting I mean, it's hard to know what the depth would be And whether you get totally absurd with it uh, With the depth issue And whether Alex Gordon is your fourth outfielder And uh, you know Whether Dexter Fowler is your fifth outfielder And Daniel Murphy takes a bench role And all those things Scott Casimir like your sixth guy out of the pen. If you go really crazy with depth, then that's probably unrealistic. You'd still have to talk those guys into coming, mm-hmm. but maybe you sign those guys first and you don't <laughs> tell them what you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, uh, Russell Carlton found that to be a, a 50-50 shot to win the World Series, assuming you've already made the playoffs and, and made it past the wild card game, you would have to have a regular season record of 113 and 49. So you'd have to be, you know, the 98 Yankees, basically. Which seems pretty reasonable,
1: except that you'd have to be, in order to be a 100% chance to win 113, then you'd have to actually be a true talent much yes. higher than
0: that. Right. Russell mentioned that, right? If you win 113 games, you probably got really lucky to get that high. So and this is a true and if talent. you are
1: right, and if you are a true talent one thirteen team, you could still just get unlucky and win. Although you'd win the wild card at the very worst. I was going to say you could still get unlucky and have a team in your division get lucky, and maybe your ninety eight only gets you the wild card because you're in the NL Central,
0: uh, mm. and so
1: then now you've got to win the wild card as well. So things could go wrong. Your talent might change as the year goes on. But eyeballing it, it looks to me like you could have put together all those guys that I said. For like a billion and a half In total commitments
0: (laughs) Plus uh, luxury tax Which isn't
1: uh, Yeah plus luxury tax that's true Yeah, Now you're 30% on a lot of that Uh, But it's not that I mean that's 1.5 billion In total commitments But a lot of those guys are signed for 6 or 7 years and even those commitments Include opt outs so they're going to opt out So 25 I don't know you're looking at You're basically looking at signing You know 13 regulars or starting pitchers for around an average of maybe 20 million each so that's like you know 260 you're barely over where the dodgers are and and then you say you have your final your relievers and your bench spots maybe that's another 12 at 10 million each so you're looking at somewhere between 350 million and 400 million
0: (laughs) okay which
1: isn't that bad and you know we've given them I mean we're spending we're assuming that they're buying all free agents like like you Mm -hmm. said they still they did have a team uh, Mm -hmm. already they might have some guys I don't like I don't know maybe maybe Billy Hamilton's still on this team somehow and that's the major league minimum and maybe you've got a few guys like that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah of course if you wanted to keep doing this you would have no farm system because you oh, would and have used it already and, and you might be horrible no draft and, picks because right. you would be losing all of them when you sign free agents so it would get harder and harder every year which is i mean that's sort of the situation the yankees have been in for the last several years or when they missed the playoffs a couple of years you know they ran out of farm system because they hadn't drafted and developed well in part because they were always trading people or losing draft picks and so they had to keep raising their payroll higher and higher just to be in contention and eventually that that's a hard thing to sustain even if you're the Yankees indefinitely so you could do this once if you were mega rich without bankrupting yourself I don't know why it hasn't been done
1: because really <laughs> if you're if you have eight billion dollars uh-huh you can spend a billion and a half of it and you're still a six billionaire And so like, why, why have a team if you're not going to do this at least once? I mean, if you're a guy who, you know, kind of maxed out his wealth to get, to get a team Mm -hmm. that sure, I understand. But like, if you're worried about only leaving your heirs a billion or 6 billion instead of eight, I guess the reason that you don't do it is because you could end up being, you still might not win. And just thinking about how (laughs) annoying that would be like, that would be the, the worst way to do baseball, to spend a billion and a half dollars to just completely obliterate the way teams do things, spend a billion and a half dollars, and then still have them lose. It'd be like, you know, that guy, uh, Alderson, spending like a billion dollars on the election and then having everything go against him, you know? Mm-hmm. be like It'd be like yeah, that. It'd be way more annoying. It'd be than, a
0: pretty good shot that that it'd be would way,
1: It'd be way more annoying than simply losing on your, on just in natural ways. Like you expect to i mean the the point of competition is that it's supposed to be hard and if you do it the way that everybody does it and you lose still you can say well hey not everybody wins every time but if you spend all this money there's this you've kind of convinced yourself that it's a sure thing and then to have it taken from you would be especially
0: bad Mm -hmm. okay play index
1: Play index. All right. So, Ben, we know that some teams take the third time through the order penalty more seriously than other teams, right? Yeah. we know that some teams are more willing to pull their starters after two trips through uh, in order to get a better pitcher in, right? Mm-hmm. And some teams are less willing to do this. So, it might make sense that if there was a pitcher who was particularly good through the first two times through the order uh, and particularly bad the third time through the order... Uh, that the team that is willing to pull him early would get more value out of him than another team and therefore ought to be more willing to pay him than another team, right? Yes. It would be like, for instance, if all 29 teams in baseball were insistent that Yadier Molina was a shortstop, but you were the one team that was willing to move your Molinas to catcher, yeah. Uh, well, not only would you get more benefit every time you got a Molina, but you ought to be able to. You ought to go out and get Molinas because nobody else would think Molina was any good. Everybody else would look at Molina and go, "Well, that guy's a bad shortstop. We don't want him." And you're like, "He's a great catcher. I do want him." So you ought to be able to go out and, and trade for that guy and and uh, make profit,
0: right? Yeah. You're, All right. You're the only team that thinks Jason Hayward or Cespedes can play center or something. Although maybe that doesn't work as well because they just might not be as good at it and it might come out as a wash. But anyway, yes.
1: All right. So I looked at the 91 pitchers in baseball who have thrown at least, I think, 175 innings worth of innings the third time through the order since 2011. So active pitchers, who have basically pitched a lot in the last five years, 175 innings through the third time through the order basically means you've thrown, you know, at least 600 innings or so. I mean, uh, uh yeah, 600 innings or so in the last five years. So mm-hmm. you're a regular pitcher. Okay. Yeah. And then I looked, uh, at how they had done the third time through the order. I used, uh, whip for this as a uh, quick and dirty stat because ERA can be a little tricky for various reasons. One is that, you know, you're, you might be relieved the third time through the order. And so a better pitcher might be coming in to strand or not strand those runners. Another is, I'm not sure, like, it's sort of weird. Like if, uh, say you, uh, say you, you know, hit a guy uh, the second time through the order and then the next batter is the leadoff hitter the third time through the order and he hits a home run. Well, the runs count the same, even though, uh, the damage was obviously a lot worse the third time through the order um, And so I used whip there would have been there were better stats but I used whip which is simple. what are the likely what are the odds that you are going to put a guy on base if you're facing him the third time through the order okay mm-hmm. and I compared that to their uh, their whips the first and second time through the order uh, and then I uh, simply uh, compared it okay? Mm -hmm. And so if your uh, whip was 20% higher, you would have a whip plus 120. Okay. All right. So high is bad. Low is good. So then I sorted by who had the highest and lowest whip pluses. And we know that there are certain qualities in a pitcher that help them the deeper they get into the games, like... Having what a variety of pitches seems yep. to help. Mm-hmm. And some guys lose velocity. Some guys, guys lose velocity. Guys. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it makes perfect sense that some guys would be better or worse, that this would be a true skill or lack of skill. It also makes sense that in small samples, we would get a lot of noise. Yeah. So I have a, a couple of things for you here. One is that it doesn't seem to be the case that better pitchers are better the third time through the order. Uh
0: You mean they decline by less?
1: Right. Like if I just look at the top guys and I just look at the the top and the bottom of the leaderboard don't have that much difference. And in fact, the guys who are relatively better the third time through the order actually seem to be relatively worse overall. Uh Not by a lot. Probably not by enough that I would conclude anything. I would probably just say that they're close. They're about the same. Uh, But there doesn't seem to be... A pure skill Based reason for having A uh, third time through the order Skill Mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting Kershaw is the uh, Is the best example Of a very good pitcher who Is not actually any better the third Time through the order relative to his peers Kershaw has the Seventh highest whip plus On this list so out of 91 Players he has the lowest Whip but the third time through the order It's Higher, it's still very good, he might actually Be the best pitcher the third time through the order In fact, I'll just go ahead and search that, let me see if He is also the best third time through the order So, uh, he is actually Also, yes, he is still the best He has the best whip the first two times As well as the best whip the third time Uh, But the the gap Between him and the rest uh, Shrinks considerably Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, he's only one Point of whip better than David Price The third time through the order, but he's it's like 17 points better in the first two times And he's just, he's way better than the, He's like 15 points better than anybody else The first two times so, uh, so Kershaw, you would say Is not very good the third time through the order By Kershaw standards uh, And he doesn't have a change up So maybe that's uh, relevant uh, Or maybe it's not So the other thing is that There seem to be, and this somewhat surprised me But there are more lefties In the good the third time Through the order Portion of this than the bad the third time Through the order portion of this and mm-hmm. that Surprised me I would probably guess that it's Nothing that it's flute that it's not a Huge extra number or anything like that but If it were true if lefties are better the third Time through the order can you think of a reason why You would sort of think it might be The opposite partly uh, That there are more pinch Hitters available to hit yeah. off A lefty and therefore he might be Much more likely to see pinch hitters the third time through the Order and Lefties in general, I, I think as a class of pitchers rely a little bit more on deception and funk, and therefore you would think that pitcher that hitters would have an advantage the more times they see them. Uh, but maybe it's also the case that lefties get pulled more quickly uh, and therefore don't go through the third time of the order as much when they're faltering. I'm not sure. Do you have any idea? Nope. All right. So then the answer to the question is that uh, the very best the third time through the order this isn't very interesting to me but the guys who are the best are chris tillman clay buckholz and wandy rodriguez so if you're a team that really likes to ride pitchers as long as you can you might see a benefit to getting chris tillman and clay buckholz uh more than a team like the cubs or the rays would but Oh, pretty much everybody else is again is you know on the other side of the Cubs and the Rays, so it's not like there's probably a real market inefficiency. If there is a market inefficiency, it would be on the other side. So who should the Cubs and the Rays go sign? The answer is Dylan G. Dylan G. <laughs> is is the worst third time through the order pitcher relative to his overall performance. He is not great though. The problem is he's not great anyway, uh, and so it's not like you'd get him and you'd you'd discover this like phenomenal awesome pitcher uh even in the first two times through the order out of 91 pitchers he ranks 65th so he's still a below average starter among starters who pitch regularly uh but you know it's a he's a competent pitcher he's uh you know he's right there with giovanni gallardo francisco liriano john Nice, ryan vogelsong a.j burnett for whip over the last five years so you could make the case that dylan g is a qualified three number, you know, number three starter, uh, the, for, for 18 batters. And then after that, he becomes a disaster. His whip goes up to 1.6. He's the worst of all pitchers. I believe, Uh, he is the, uh, sorry, he's the third, he's the third worst pitcher, the third time through the order, um, in raw numbers, only Aaron harang and Trevor Cahill have been worse than him the third time through the order. Uh, Joe Saunders has been slightly better than him He's the next on the list So basically Dylan G undoes any value he has As an innings eater uh, By getting full really early And then throwing up So Dylan G is the answer And also interesting to me is that the, The next name on the list is Jake Peavy And Jake Peavy is a guy who I already knew, was very bad the third time through the order, anecdotally. Like, I think Giants fans all know it. I think it was talked about a lot in the postseason in 2014. Just by looking at him, we all sort of uh, intuited that this is a thing about him. And here we have numbers that show that it is actually true. Our eyes have picked up on this. Jake Peavy uh, is just slightly better than Dylan G uh, relative to their true performances, uh, their overall performances, the third time through the order. So there you go. Tampa Bay should get Dylan G. The Cubs should get Jake Peavy, and uh, no, well, no, nobody should, nobody should get Wandy Rodriguez.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I think uh, I'll just note that in his opus on the times for the order penalty at Baseball Prospectus, Mitchell Lichman found that it takes a really long time for this to mean something. Like it's like BABIP or something. Uh-huh. So he he said it's like eight seasons of full time starting pitching until you can really trust that a starters first time, second time, third time through the order splits mean much. Maybe you could improve on that if you brought in other factors like the pitches he throws and velocity loss and all of that. Yeah, I would say that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's see if I have a quick one to finish on. Well, Leo says, I've been reading a lot of prospect lists recently, and I noticed that comparisons to former prospects is really rarely used as a criterion when ranking. For example, if 80% of players with similar prospect profiles to X found success in the majors, shouldn't that be a good sign that X will be successful in the majors too? I was wondering how accurate you think prospect comparisons are for judging a player's future success, and if so, why aren't they used more often? So I know that statistical systems do it this way. So whether it's Pakoda's upside scores and and long-term projections for prospects, those are in some part based on comparables, and some of those comparables will be players who panned out and others will be... Players who didn't pan out. And I think similarly, the uh, Cato system that Chris Mitchell uses at FanGraphs is based on something like that, also looking at baselines at certain levels and what it means to be good or bad at certain skills at certain minor league levels and age brackets and all that sort of thing. In theory, a non statistical system, which is, you know, just a scout or a prospect ranker is doing the same thing, just not doing it with math or maybe not showing all the work. And, and sometimes you'll see a, a prospect writer who say, so-and-so reminds me of Greg Golson or you know, whoever, some, some prospect who had some sort of profile and didn't pan out. I think more often you probably see comparisons to players who worked out just because, you know, maybe it's more interesting to the reader. The reader is more likely to know who that player is, and the writer is more likely to remember that player because he worked out and then stuck around for many years. So you probably see fewer comparisons to prospects who didn't work out than you should. But in theory, at least, scouts and writers are drawing on their database of all the prospects they've ever seen, and remembering what didn't work for certain guys and dinging the current prospects appropriately i would i would guess that on the whole you're kind of more likely to reach for a comparison to a player who did become a big leaguer and did succeed just because that example is more easily accessed but in theory this is happening Mm mm-hmm All right, so you can send us more emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Please support our sponsor, the play index at baseballreference.com and use the coupon code VP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back soon.